Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall, and this is Disorder. A podcast where we try very hard to make sense of our mad, 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 mad world. And as this is the first episode of the new year, can I just start by wishing all our listeners a very happy new year. I hope it's a surprisingly good one, just like our podcast. For this episode, we're going to talk about the BRICS, the geopolitical grouping of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. A term that was initially coined by a Goldman Sachs banker, probably on a huge bonus, in 2001, to describe a new group of emerging economic powers, but which the countries themselves then decided in 2009 to turn into an actual grouping. But what is the rationale of this organization? Is it explicitly positioning itself, as some people believe, as an anti-West grouping? Or is it more simply just a non-West grouping? This episode is also being recorded just as the BRICS is ready to expand and become BRICS Plus, with six new members, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. And maybe, you know, just maybe possibly Argentina, although Argentina's membership is now looking in doubt. So we're going to be looking at why do these countries want to join the group? And what will this expanded membership mean to make the group not only impactful, but also presenting a kind of international ordering? Or will it be international disordering? Good question, Jason. I mean, one thing that's certainly clear is that trying to add the initials E-E-I-S-U-A would have turned BRICS into BRICS E-I-S-C-U-R, which is clearly not very easy to say. It's so a food it's the BRICS item, Alex. Plus. You've never had Bricasua? <laughs> I thought it was a kind of soup. <laughs> Acronym soup. To be more serious, where does BRICS Plus go next? And how should the West respond? Hello, orderers. Happy New Year to all of you. I hope 2024 will bring you personally and the globe much more order as we try to handle the challenges ahead, like the famous elections coming up in the US and the UK. Alex, it seems to me that 2024 is a year with much potential many possible new orders lying out there on the horizon, but probably even more alternative disorders that are coming into focus. So speaking of all these alternative orders on the horizon and potential disorders, I think that this is a way to look at BRICS. I'm a believer in having more international institutions and organizations, but I want ones that work and that coordinate well for positive sum win-win outcomes. And I haven't made up my mind on BRICS because I haven't seen enough data and I'm not knowledgeable enough. Can this really be something that we can take seriously, Alex? That's the million dollar question, Jason. 
Yes, I've heard bricks described in many different ways. I have one quote here. It's the, quote, alternative West rather than the anti-West. Or here's another one. If BRICS is not a new world order, then certainly it's an attempt at an alternative world order. But one of the problems bedeviling the BRICS is that they have so many disagreements and tensions within the organization. So can they actually agree on anything? And here's another quote. BRICS is a negative coalition of states that can't agree on a common position, but they can create a consensus on what they oppose. What they appear to oppose is the US-led world order. And then it sounds like BRICS is a mirror of the enduring disorder, because what I postulate is since America has withdrawn from its traditional role of global ordering, it's not like a coalition has come about to replace it with a coherent vision. So as you say, it's not an anti-West, it's a non-West, and they're not presenting an alternative order per se. So we might be in for a rocky ride in 2024, independent of how those elections play out. I'm not sure if the West is up for the task of ordering. Can the non-West offer an alternative model? And can they really try to order the current disorder? If so, how? To me, the only way that it could happen is if China was willing to lead a coalition of non-Western states that would create an order that various Western states would accept. And in that instance, BRICS would be a China-led coalition. So they'd need to articulate a position of how they see global institutions. How do they see the UN functioning? How do they see using COP or some climate change mechanism to get people to curb emissions? If that was happening, I missed it. So am I missing the potential ordering that the BRICS could bring about, Alex? No, you're not at all. I think, unfortunately, it's so much easier to throw stones and criticize what the US or the West is doing than actually to take on responsibility and offer common solutions. And I mean, we're all guilty of that. I'm guilty of that. I sit there writing posts on my social media, attacking what the government is doing or criticizing them on refugee policy. And it's a completely fair question back, which is, well, what's your alternative? And that's the problem with the BRICS. I don't think they're yet offering a coherent alternative world order. However, I do think they're highlighting the fact that our current international institutions are imbalanced and that there are concerns in the global south that aren't being picked up. I mean, one of the issues that I think is often reflected is we've all been so concerned about Ukraine for very good reasons. But for countries in the global south, we've been frustrated. Why aren't you more vocal in criticizing Russia? Why are you abstaining on these resolutions? And the message we're getting back is, but we have our concerns. We see this as a northern issue, but are you really focusing on the issues that affect us? And the conflict in Ukraine and the conflict in the Middle East are dominating our media coverage. But where's Sudan? Where's the Rohingya? Where is the coverage of Yemen? All these other issues going on around the world that get displaced. So I do feel like the BRICS are raising issues that we ought to be taking seriously, even if they are not the group to formulate solutions to those. These are all really weighty and meaty questions, Alex. And one of the things that I want to accomplish with this podcast is not just to throw stones and to say, this is broken, this is bad, this is hypocritical. 
I felt that there were too many podcasts and news outlets doing that. I want to be proposing solutions. So I'm open to this idea of finding out the way that the BRICS and non-Western organizations and institutions can help provide alternative global ordering. And to hear more about this BRICS grouping and the potential solutions and proposals that they have, we're going to turn to a real expert, Anjali Bhatt. She is an economist with the Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. She wrote an excellent article for The Diplomat publication, recently assessing the state of the BRICS after their 15th leadership summit in Johannesburg took place last year, 2023, in August. And this makes her the perfect person to help us understand where is the BRICS and BRICS Plus going to go next? So I began our interview by asking her to describe the core rationale of the BRICS. Is it still mainly an economic group or is it becoming really more about politics? What they like to posit themselves as is a group committed to restructuring the global architecture. By architecture, I mean, you know, the financial architecture, the political architecture, things like the World Bank, the IMF, the UN. They all agree that they and the developing world should have a larger voice and a larger share at these global institutions. And so that's sort of what brings them together is that they all care about rebalancing the global institutions that we have. Okay, so I've heard it described as something that is not anti-West, but it's a kind of alter-West. It's trying to provide an alternative model of global governance and advocate for more representation in global institutions, particularly for countries from the global South. Would that be a fair description? Especially after the expansion, there were, you know, a lot of sort of breathless takes about how we have an anti-Western bloc that's going to rise and and take over. That's not what they want. That's not what's happening. I think they're more of an anti-international institutions that are dominated by the West bloc. Right. They want to fix those institutions and they don't love how they're arranged now, but it's not aiming to be the new like global leader. And one of the things that they also stress a lot is that the BRICS countries are anti-unipolarity. And by unipolarity, I mean having a single great power in the world. And so they like to argue that they want a multipolar world. They want multiple, you know, large powers that work together. You could argue that that's not actually what China wants. And I think that that's a fair argument. But in everything that's been stated so far, it's mostly just a anti-unipolarity block. Some people have considered that the BRICS is a vehicle for Chinese leadership. To what extent do the Chinese see it that way? And is that fair? Do the other members accept that? On the first part, how did the Chinese see it? Yes. Do the other members accept it? No. It's like, for example, if you look at like the NDB, their development bank, the five founding members have equal shares and have contributed equal amounts of capital even though it's based in China, you know, China doesn't have a larger share of votes in their development bank. They all can and have put forward initiatives within BRICS countries. And I think India will not accept, you know, any kind of block or platform or forum or whatever that is very clearly Chinese led. And even though, you know, China is obviously angling for a, a larger role on the global stage, China is aiming to be seen, you know, as a spokes country for the developing countries, for the global south. They're trying, but I don't think that some of the other large emerging markets will just take that. 
So what are the dynamics within the group between the original founding members? You look at India and China, they do not get along. Most recently, there was a border skirmish in, in 2020, and that was kind of tense for a while. But what they like to say is that they focus more on what they agree on than what they disagree on. And so the BRICS is a forum for the stuff they do agree on. One other thing I think is that at the most recent BRICS summit in South Africa, they wanted all the leaders of all the BRICS countries to be there. And so Putin was going to go, but the International Criminal Court had a warrant out for his arrest. And South Africa is party to the ICC. So if he showed up in South Africa, they would have had the imperative to arrest him. They signaled like pretty strongly that they weren't actually going to do that. But in the end, he just, you know, decided not to go to not open that issue at all. And that's kind of awkward, I think, just for what they're trying to do. That really makes summits complicated if one of your <laughs> key leaders is an indicted war criminal. That certainly complicates things. Exactly. Okay, so India and China, they have disputed border in the Himalaya region. Well, they've gone to war with each other several times over yeah. this disputed border. And then you have the fact that India and Brazil are kind of trying to tread a fine line between maintaining a relationship with the U.S., but also signaling to the U.S. perhaps that they have alternate options. Yeah, I think that there's a viable alternative infrastructure forming that's not the Western-led bloc. Much of the global South, the developing world, you know, have been in this U.S.-led, U.S.-designed system since the Second World War. And it hasn't really benefited them as much as anyone said it would have. And they're getting kind of frustrated with that. And so finally now with the BRICS, it's a platform for developing countries to sort of come together without having the specter of the West looming over them. I think one of the really big things, you know, the old BRICS members and, and the current ones really emphasize is the structure of the UN Security Council. Something as important as the Security Council at the UN should have more representation from developing countries, from the global South. And so the BRICS is also a way to show that there are lots of countries that are interested in that rebalancing. I mean, all of the countries that were even interested in BRICS, they're all part of the UN. And so they all have a vested interest in rearranging that institution. The interesting thing, however, is that it's the BRIC members themselves who can't agree on who the new membership should be. So Brazil, for example, would like to be on the Security Council, but so would Mexico. Yeah. And there's kind of a <laughs> tension there. And then Russia might be more inclined to support Indian membership on the Security Council, but China would prefer it to be Pakistan if there was a South Asian representative. And India and Pakistan would obviously hate for each other to be on yeah. the Security Council. <laughs> so those, and then South Africa would like to be on the Security Council, but arguably Nigeria or Egypt would have a legitimate claim to membership. They know they don't like the current composition of the Security Council, but actually the chances of them coming up with an agreed set of recommendations on what it should be, that seems pretty unlikely. They're very clear on what they don't like, but way harder to figure out what you actually do like and want to do. As a young professional, I am learning that very, very quickly. Yeah, that's, that's true <laughs> of life in general, I find. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's true in life, true in international relations. So one of the things I think is the most concrete to come out of the BRICS is the New Development Bank, the NDB, which is their version of a development bank. It's supposed to be you know, an alternative 
to um, the World Bank, the regional development banks that, you know, are dominated by the West. So it's set up in China. The headquarters are in China. The BRICS members are the founding members, but there are a couple other um, contributing shareholders. I know Bangladesh is one of them um, and a couple others. And so the goal of the NDB is to lend in local currencies rather than in the dollar. That's another thing that they can all agree that they don't like, but aren't really sure how to replace that. And so with the NDB, the goal there is to lend to developing countries for infrastructure projects and stuff like that in local currencies rather than in the U.S. dollar. But one of the things I think is interesting um, about one of the real things the BRICS have done is that they've set up a sports tournament. So in October, they had the BRICS Games in South Africa. And so BRICS athletes competed in swimming, badminton, table tennis, tennis, and beach volleyball. And so I think that that's kind of a, a funny sort of low stakes example of how they are doing things to, to bring their people together through sports. <laughs> and the next thing we will have is a BRICS version of the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> I would love to watch that. I would love to watch Bricks that vision. too. BRICS vision. <laughs> and now at the most recent summit, the BRICS decided to expand by taking in six new members. And I understood that there were some 40 countries that were interested in joining the group, either had formally applied or expressed an interest. Who are the new members and how were they selected? Iran being one of them, I know. Yeah, so Iran is one of them. And then it's Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Ethiopia, and then maybe Argentina. We're not sure on that at time of recording of this podcast. And how these countries were picked out of the many that were interested, it's pretty unclear. The BRICS did release their guiding principles for a session to the BRICS. Which doesn't include democracy, obviously. (laughs) No, I mean, it does include human rights, which, okay. (laughs) But the guiding principles for BRICS membership expansion, there's lots of buzzwords like strengthening multilateralism and promoting institutional development. They do actually say uh, democracy. They say ensure the promotion and protection of democracy, human rights, and fundamental freedoms for all, which like (laughs) is great. So now has Iran (laughs) and Saudi Arabia, great bastions of freedom and human rights. Famously democratic. And so one of the things I think is interesting is that they have to have diplomatic and friendly relations with all existing BRICS member states. I mean, you could argue that India and China don't have diplomatic and friendly relations. They have diplomatic relations. So I think that, you know, that's really enough as if your countries have any kind of diplomatic relations. Another thing that's in their criteria is spelling out that they all want a comprehensive reform of the UN, of the Security Council. And so I think countries do have to really demonstrate that they care about reforming the UN and, and Security Council. Yeah, but I mean, beyond that, it's pretty broad. So they've chosen this really unusual group of countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia, who have quite tense relationships, Egypt and Ethiopia that have bilateral tensions over management of the Nile, the United Arab Emirates, and then Argentina, although Argentina under the new president-elect has said that it may not be interested in joining Bricks, after all. So they've imported a few new tensions. They've maybe upset a few of the countries that had applied and were turned down. 
But it's a growing group. It's now 30% of global GDP and 43% of global oil production. That's not a negligible grouping. That gives the group quite a lot of heft. Yeah, I mean, I think that all of them do agree on the UN Security Council. That's really all they care about. And also, these countries are all looking to flex their muscles diplomatically generally, like uh, Saudi Arabia... UAE, all pretty active on, for example, Israel and Gaza, and certainly flexing their muscles there. Just one thing to say about you know the situation in, in Israel and Gaza is for the first time ever, the BRICS convened an extraordinary joint meeting to discuss the situation in the Middle East. The Secretary General of the UN was there. Oh. Yeah. That's pretty significant. It was the BRICS countries, the ones that, that were added. And then the UN Secretary General were there to exchange views on the current situation in the Middle East. But, you know, they are pretty clearly on the Palestinian side. They don't say free Palestine, but they say a sovereign, independent state of Palestine. So that's really signaling where their heads are. But this is the first time that they've ever had a summit or even some kind of meeting about a specific global issue to lay out sort of their rules or their thoughts on the matter. That really shows that this commitment to diplomacy, we're sort of entering a new era of BRICS diplomacy where they're realizing that they can have opinions about things that are going on in the world and come to some kind of agreement on on what to say about some of them. So they might be tempted to do that on other issues and develop those habits. Yeah. Right. So Argentina... The new president, Javier Millet, is very pro-America and very pro-Israel, as it happens, and very critical of China and Brazil. So is that why he recently announced that he does not want to join BRICS after all? When he was uh, campaigning, he made you know a lot of big promises about how he was going to dollarize Argentina and abolish the central bank. And now coming into office, he's realized that that not feasible. So he's sort of walking a lot of that back. And there was also a lot of anti-China rhetoric during his campaign, which also I think is being walked back a little bit given how strong Argentina's economic ties are with China. But then also had his incoming foreign minister say, you know, they're not married to the idea of BRICS. You know, they said the invitation is there. They don't have to accept or deny. So I think Argentina is kind of leaving that on the table for now and approach that when they feel like it. But they did say that they want to join the OECD as an organization for economic cooperation and development, which is sort of like the rich country club that won't happen anytime soon. But they have signaled that they're more interested in the OECD than the BRICS. Let's just move on a little bit then. How should the West engage with or respond to BRICS? I mean, should we ignore it? Should we engage with it? Should we just watch it from a distance? How should we be responding to it? So far, you know, there hasn't really been anything other than many, many think pieces discussing, you know, these issues about how we should respond. But there hasn't been any cohesive response from the G7, the G20, the rest of the members of the UN Security Council. There hasn't really been any big formal acknowledgement of that. You know, there should be. I think that the main thing here is that the West should be taking this seriously. The BRICS aren't yet cohesive enough to really have real heft in global institutions. But 
this really does show that there is lots of interest for that, that there is lots of interest in the global South for these architectures, these institutions that are not Western dominated. There's an appetite for some kind of not Western block, even if it's not anti-Western. And I think that, you know, for the past 50 years, the U.S. and UN and our European allies have kind of been like coasting along, designing the world economy as we see fit. But now there are countries that, that have enough agency and diplomatic power to say that this is not what we want and we want to rebalance this. Even if we applied for observer status, I don't think they would give it to us. <laughs> the only Western country that was in attendance at the Johannesburg summit was Belarus. Yeah, not typical. Not, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, that's not a typical Western country anyway. And so the BRICS themselves are, are really focused on their thing. I don't think they're going to sort of engage the Western powers as part of the BRICS process anytime and soon. And actually, they would probably see it as... Western countries trying to hijack it again, you know, and yet again, impose our values or strictures on it. They're probably right. You know, that is something I think the US would do. But I do think that, you know, the BRICS need to be taken seriously. It's very clear that countries are not pleased with at least the arrangement in the UN. And now there's even more weight behind the arguments to rebalance it. And so I think that those really need to be, you know, taken seriously and and considered. Okay. But there's two different things here. There's taking BRICS seriously and sort of respecting that group, or there's taking some of the concerns or issues that are encouraging countries to be interested in BRICS, taking those concerns seriously. Am I right in thinking what you're suggesting is we need to be taking those concerns seriously? Yeah, I think that's a great point because it is, you know, it is these issues that are driving these countries together that is driving the BRICS. And so it's those concerns that we need to take seriously. If the BRICS formalizes further and they start signing agreements between their countries um, and set up a real permanent secretariat and start institutionalizing the BRICS itself, I think then we need to take it more seriously as a coherent political block with a lot of power. All right. So let's sort of wrap up by looking into the longer term. I mean, you've already given several suggestions that this has the potential to coalesce a little bit more, develop some practices. The ad hoc meeting on Gaza was kind of an unusual initiative. Where do you see BRICS going? You know, in the short to medium term, the BRICS will mostly be figuring out what BRICS Plus is and what they can be with the addition of these new countries. I think also in the the short to medium term, I think a lot of what we're going to see is like what we saw at the G20 summit, where the Western countries really don't want China and India to like win things, but they kind of did. And and Russia did too. I mean, they took the language on the Russia-Ukraine war from last year's communique and watered that down like even further because Russia, China and India were able to come together on that issue and demand from the other G20 members, you know, we want softer language on this. They also, you know, couldn't come uh, to any agreement on climate commitments, on fossil fuel phase out because of China and, and India largely. It's going to be even harder to come to an agreement within the G20 now that, you know, China and India are willing to flex their diplomatic muscles a little bit more. I think it's going to be really hard to come to any kind of real concrete agreement in these forums. So like the EU informally caucuses before the G20 or G7 or UN meetings, you can see these countries developing habits of kind of informally caucusing before events. 
Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And they, and it presents a foil to sort of the traditional sort of Western alliances that have dominated these structures for a while. Now that they are coalescing a little bit more, I think that that does give more power and weight to uh, what they want to see from something like the G20. But since that is directly at odds with what Western allies want, I think it's going to be really, really hard to come to any agreement. After the break, Jason and I are going to delve a little bit more deeply into what extent the BRICS really do have a chance to build an alternative global order. Or are they just disorderers? In either case, how should the West respond? Alex, what a thought-provoking interview with Anjali. I mean, when I was hearing the discussion about reforming the UN, I'm thinking to myself, yes, of course that's right. The legacy post-World War II institutions reflected a power reality which doesn't exist anymore. And the BRICS countries need to have more of a say. But then again, the BRICS includes Russia and China, who are already in the UN Security Council and have a veto. And I'm not sure that they're happy to reform the UN because the UN, as constructed, allows Russia the blocking power so that they can prevent discussions about real reform happening. And the BRICS might be like the wrong format for this because they're weighted more towards disorderers and blockers rather than orderers, aren't they? Well, so this is kind of another one of those moral dilemmas. I mean, anyone looking at the balance of power across the world might legitimately question whether both Britain and France should have veto power on the UN Security Council. Certainly, a European power or Europe should be represented there. But we have two out of the five permanent seats. So if you are interested purely in balance and fairness, of course there is a case for reform of the UN Security Council. But then you have the issue of self-interest. What confidence do we have that new members on the UN Security Council would use that role responsibly? And certainly, to what extent would they use that role in ways that we believe would be consistent with our interests and values? You only have to look at what Anjali and I were discussing right at the end of that interview about what happened at the G20 summit last year, where Russia, Saudi Arabia, India all used their position in that grouping to water down language on Ukraine, water down language on climate change. So there's a kind of real politique aspect to this as well. What might be the sort of right thing to do is not necessarily the best thing to do when it comes to our own interests. And there's the dilemma. Yes, fairness and interests don't always align. I'm asking another question potentially, which is that coming out of the interview, I'm not clear, Alex, about the BRICS as orderers versus disorderers. But if I go country by country of the initial BRICS, I see them as disorderers. Whereas the BRICS plus, the new additions, I'm not against the new additions. The reason being is that whether Brazil has Bolsonaro in it or Lula, they have that same dynamic that they seem prey to neo-populism. Russia obviously is the world's greatest disorderer. 
India with Modi seems really set on this civilizational mission, potentially assassinating Sikh separatist politicians in Canada and really cracking down on Muslim minority rights in India in a in a way that I don't think that we should be empowering. And then now that the Chinese are having their economic crisis, they seem quite ready to lash out, let alone the corruption in South Africa. It's not just Zuma. It seems that the post-apartheid state is just riddled with corruption. I don't think that BRICS is necessarily the right format when we think of the nation states that are leading this effort. And again, it goes back to my inability to take it seriously as a potential ordering institution. I'm not going to argue with you on that. I agree with you. It's riddled with flaws and contradictions. And the moral stance of the countries in the BRICS are highly questionable. India's role, I think, is a little bit ambiguous because it's the world's biggest democracy. It may not be a perfect democracy, but these days, who is? I think India, however, is playing an ordering role in the Indian Ocean and in terms of working with the US, Australia, Japan to counterbalance Chinese influence in the Asia-Pacific region. So India is actually a partner on quite a lot of issues. And it's my hunch, though I don't know this for sure, that India probably helped to moderate some of the language coming out of the emergency BRICS session on Israel-Gaza. I suspect India plays a moderating role, and it's quite helpful to have them in that grouping. Let's just kind of do a thought experiment about BRICS. I think it'd be great if there was a non-Anglo-American, non-European and America security alliance slash international organization. I like the idea of this. If you're Chile and you're Vietnam and then you're Myanmar and you're Namibia, you might have some economic issues that are similar. How do we empower women? How do we get loans and credit to entrepreneurs who might not have traditional bank accounts? I love the idea that they could have some kind of economic or security forum because the solutions that work in California are not necessarily going to work in China and Chile and Myanmar, but the ones that worked in Chile really might work in Vietnam. They might. And certainly the ones that worked in Namibia might work in Zambia. I don't think it's for me as a white male from New York, New Jersey, to mansplain to them how they should have this organization. It would be very inappropriate. So my only question is with, is BRICS that institution? And it seems like it might not be. But sometimes things need to start and then fail as the first step towards getting towards it. So maybe, and this seems more like a mid-21st century thing, Alex, that there could be a genuinely multipolar, non-Western-led economic or security institution that works, like an ASEAN or something that transcends regions. What do you think? I think the G20 was an initiative to try and provide a more equitable forum for countries across the world to express their views and have their voices heard. We talk a lot about the unfairness of the Anglo-American or European-American or Western-led international world order. But I think sometimes we beat ourselves up too much. 
I certainly, as a diplomat, recall we were always feeding into London. We need to take into account the view of this country or that country. That is what we did. And so I just don't think the BRICS has the ability to offer concrete solutions. I think some of the members of BRICS are malcontents. Some are active disorderers who just want to pull the US down, no matter what the wider damage that does. They are just trying to create trouble. I'm just going to be slightly more blunt. I think an organization that has the murderous authoritarian ruler, Vladimir Putin, the regime that runs Iran and oppresses women and minorities and sponsors terrorists across the Middle East is not a grouping that can offer any constructive solutions to our world order. I'm just going to put that out. We've been tiptoeing around it in our classic guilt-ridden white way of angst, of we have to take into account these concerns. I do not think they represent or offer any constructive solutions to the world order. Great. And I can agree and double down, but I don't think I'm coming at it from a guilt-ridden white perspective here. I just want to say, I do see that non-Western actors should be taken a little bit more seriously on stuff about global order and human rights. Yes. There may be some Western hypocrisy because some countries could, for example, be fairly oppressive internally, whether it's to their women or to their bloggers. You know, you can be a Saudi male blogger and go to jail for doing nothing, just for writing a tweet. But that doesn't mean that they don't have a role to play on the international financial or regional ordering level. It just may not be in terms of the way in which you and I contextualize a liberal understanding of individual rights. So I want to just open up that the thing that's coming down the pipeline, the mid-21st century thing, may not have our Western-centric liberal way of looking at ordering. It's going to be some kind of alternative way. No? I do worry, since this is the first episode of 2024, what the raft of elections around the world is going to bring. I think it's looking fairly positive for Modi in India. His party just swept three big elections at the end of last year, three big state elections. I think Putin might amazingly sweep the board. I can't see any viable challenge to him. I don't think elections happen in China. I think the biggest elections are going to be the ones in the West, the European Parliament elections in the UK and in the US, where there is growing populist sentiment, there is a growing backlash against migration. The election of Geert Wilders in the Netherlands was just a foretaste of what we might see across the rest of Europe. What may happen at the end of 2024, and God forbid, I'm not going to make any bones about this, God forbid if Donald Trump ends up winning the election in November 2024 in the US. Liz Cheney said, if he wins, we will be sleepwalking into dictatorship. And that is going to turn on its head. I don't even think it's sleepwalking. He told us, I'll be a dictator on day one. 
Yes, she made that remark before he then said rather conveniently on TV, I will be a dictator, but just maybe for the first few days. Yeah, until all the opposition is eliminated. Yeah, you know, exactly. So that is going, you know, we've been operating on this assumption that we do still retain some moral high ground in terms of ordering the world order. And I think that could be turned upside down and on its head this yep. year. But that brings us back to the elections issue. Yeah, you mentioned Gerd Wilders. I think that anti-migration sentiment in Europe is incredibly popular because of misinformation. People don't get that the small boats are not the majority of migrants, and they don't get that the migrants are needed to keep things like the NHS open. The amount of misinformation that's in this debate means that we're debating something that makes no sense. Just like all of the debate about Israel, Gaza, and how many babies were killed in incubators and how many babies were beheaded or whatever. It's obviously, it's all tragic, but that's not dealing with the realities of, okay, great. How do we govern Gaza after this? How do we get the war to stop? You know what I mean? Like We're not debating the real issues, which is that it is interesting that the BRICS do discuss things about Gaza. I will say the proof will be in the pudding when all of a sudden, Alex, they say, we're so appalled with all this Palestinian suffering, we've decided to take some Gazan refugees and give a few billion dollars for the rebuilding of Gaza the day after fund. And until they're willing to take the Gazan refugees and give those few billion, all of the finger pointing won't really make much of an impression on me. Words are cheap. If they start taking serious action, then we can start taking them seriously. Jason, I think your comment was the best wrap up for this episode. If you want to be more serious than the BRICS and actually order the disorder, you can tap follow right now. And then unlike those Brickians, you'll be notified when every episode launches. Just search Disorder Show to find us on social media. And finally, you can always read more about each episode's topic by visiting our show notes. Our producer is George McDonough. Our executive producer is Neil Fern. I'm another brick in the wall. Thank you for listening and hope you have an orderly week. Dun, 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 dun.